Richard Foreman sat down with moderator Stephen Druckmann for a one-on-one interview in April of 1997. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. First questions I want to ask are are, um, to indulge me as a biographer. I want to know about uh, if you had any early mentors, either at Brown or Yale, and if you see, I guess particularly your early work, uh, in any way furthering those mentors or perhaps in in an edible sense, dethroning those mentors. I did have one earlier mentor who wasn't, I suppose, an aesthetic influence on me, but when I was in high school, the head of our little uh, high school drama group was a man who gave, who uh, allowed me to do things that all the other teachers in high school thought were crazy, that I should not be allowed to do that. Uh, I started uh, making scenery. I can't remember exactly why, but I think I was about 15 when I started making scenery for the high school drama group where I was also an actor. But then this fellow, John Hemmerly, let me uh, do scenery for uh, different theaters around Westchester. And I would make surrealistic, at 15, 16, I would make surrealistic stage sets for all these conventional Broadway comedies that they were doing. I, I did a set for the Bronxville Community Theater for Strange Bedfellows, which was sort of a sex farce from the 50s and uh, I've never gotten a better review. The review in the Bronxville newspaper started out, cast and audience suffered alike last night from a set designed by Richard Foreman. <laughs> we'll never top that. But then I had uh, in, in college at Brown, uh, no, I wouldn't say I had any mentor. I was very active being an actor at that point in the Brown drama group. But uh, at Yale, I certainly had a mentor and that was John Gasner who taught playwriting. And uh, now this is not a seminar about playwriting, but in a sense, it has to be in a slight way because I only became a director because nobody else would do my plays. Nobody else knew what to make of them. Mm-hmm. But in those days, this re- and this relates to being a director, John Gasner said to me at one point, uh, he, was, he was very sure, and I remember him looking up at me saying, you know, Richard, you have talent. I want you to take that seriously because I don't say that to everybody, but you have one big flaw, and that is that you achieve a dramatic effect, an effect of a kind of tension in your text, a big scene, and then you just, you want to repeat it and repeat it and repeat that same emotion, that same tension, that same conflict. So I immediately thought, well, boy, I've got to learn how to fix that. And then uh, a little while later, I thought, well, maybe I should just exploit that particular obsession. And uh, I then began writing plays that indeed were concerned with repeating the one, whatever you want to call it, emotion or psychological tension that I think is most productive. I'm doing it again and again and again. And how that influences my work as a director, I'm not sure, but um, if anybody introduced me to a kind of rigor in examining the theater, that is what I am most concerned with, both as a writer and a, a director, that certainly was John Gasner. 
of course, you, was the old, uh, what we now call a dramaturg, but he was the literary manager of the Theater Guild uh, for many years before he then became a teacher and anthologizer and writer of books on the theater. Well, in a way, to, to talk about your directing, we have to talk about your playwriting because so often it's said that the subject of your stagings is the writing process itself, which is kind of an old saw now uh, in Richard Foreman criticism. I'm wondering, for, for these people who are you know, all directors, I suppose, can you take them through the process from the moment you pick up a pen to the final performance in a run, how uh, the writing process gets staged and restaged, and, and how the directing is either an augmentation of that or ways to, to do other things to the text to, to bring the writing process out. Yeah, well, that's a whole long subject, isn't it? That'll take the rest of the night. Um, I don't feel like but, talking anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can say to begin with, you know, when I was a young person, I mean, I got into the theater because I was very shy. And the theater was a way for me as an actor to live a life in which I could re relate to other human beings and not be so shy. So I was an actor for many years. Then, because I also painted, as I just said, you know, when I was still a teenager, I became a scenic designer. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, when I got to Yale, friends of mine were writing plays, and I would read them, and I said to myself at one point, I can do as good as this, so I think I'll start writing plays, and that will give me total control. I, I liked doing scenery because, to me, that sort of controlled, and I think it still does more than people realize, both the mise-en-scene of a play and all kinds of things about the theatrical experience. Uh, when I went to Yale, as a, I went as a playwright, and uh, I was copying one year Arthur Miller, one year Brecht, you know, you name it, one year Giraudoux. And I remember being in New York, when I first came to New York, uh, I remember sitting in my apartment thinking, now wait a minute, this is silly. If I went to the theater tonight, what would I really like to see happening on stage? And I saw something, kind of tension between two people, a kind of moment, that then made me think, oh, this is the way I will write my plays, and it's what I've been doing ever since. And I say it because it really wasn't only uh, a moment, I think, that a writer would have, but it was a moment of this hallucination or whatever it was that a director might have also. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you that somehow this moment was related to a split second in a production I didn't think that was that great that I saw in those years, which was Jose Quintero's production of Jean Genet's The Balcony. Mm -hmm. And there was Shelley Winters in that old circle in the square downtown, which was you looked across and saw the audience over there, and there was Shelley Winters and uh, Lee Grant, and you know, the play was going on, but it was kind of boring, you know, so I sort of dropped out of the play for a moment, and it was just a moment of them looking at each other, and somehow a kind of geometry of their looks and their relation to the people behind them flashed into my mind, and I started doing these very, these plays that were just made up of those moments of a geometric, psychologically charged rearrangement of people on the stage. Uh, again, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the writing, but I, uh, in the old days, I used to uh, write from an outline. And then I realized that that wasn't quite making it, and I would sort of de-write the outline. Mm 
this was 19, I don't know, 63. Uh, so if the outline said, Ben enters the room and says to Rhoda, no, I don't want you to go on a vacation by yourself. Somehow, as I was writing that outline, that scene of the outline, I would try to write everything that they would say that would belie or contradict what seemed to be the content of that outline. Then uh, I, I did that for a while, and I would start a play, take me about six months of false starts, where I'd write a couple of pages, it wouldn't work, I'd throw it out. Finally, after six months, the play would write itself. Then I started realizing that, oh, but all the false starts are interesting. Why can't I stage all the false starts? Because they're really coming from the same psychological place in me. So I started doing the complete contents of these notebooks in which I would start play after play. Mm -hmm. That would, I'd say, oh, I'll go from page 20 to page 50, and that'll be the play with no changes. I gave myself the rule of a director in those days, not changing it. And as I say, I only started directing because nobody else would. And I was friendly with uh, Jonas Mikas, who was starting the in those days what's called the underground film movement in New York. Uh, I showed my play, I was friendly therefore with all the filmmakers, I felt terribly alienated from the theater, I never liked anything I saw in the theater, with few exceptions, I could mention those. But uh, the fire department closed down Jonas's theater, and he came to me and said, I'm not allowed to show films in my theater, but I'll give it to you, you can put on plays. So for three years, I survived by having this theater that was given to me, free put on my plays with my friends who were filmmakers, non-actors. So that uh, in directing those plays, I felt that my task was to x-ray the text, to add absolutely nothing to the text, to just do it as a kind of very geometrically controlled series of conversations where people would, my non-actor actors would move very woodenly, do a variety of things. Then uh, at one point, purely by accident, uh, Kate Mannheim, who was, my, who was my wife and was my leading actress for many years, uh, came into one of my plays as the last minute uh, as a replacement for somebody who quit. You know, oh, there's a girl over there who might be interested in being in a play. I asked her and she said, I'll be in the play. Over the next 10 years, uh, she did two things. She developed a technique that was very unique of her own that the other non-actors could not match. Plus, she kept saying, oh, Richard, all this boring, dry, academic stuff. I want to do more jazzy things. Come on, write some scenes where I do this. And I'd say, okay, okay, don't bug me. I'll give you some scenes like that. And that certainly pulled the plays, both the writing of them and the directing of them, into a more theatricalist mode as opposed to a kind of minimalist mode that they were in at the beginning. Because all the art I admired in New York in the uh, middle 60s was minimalist art of one sort or another, be it uh, Steve Reich and Phil Glass and music, be it all the painters, be it certain filmmakers. So Kate forced me to realize on stage what I always basically knew, that I wasn't really a minimalist. I really was a closet romantic and wanted a kind of rich, complex texture. Okay, so I was doing page, it was a moral obligation to do page 30 to 50 in my notebook to not add any theatrical embellishment, to try to x-ray the text. Then at a certain point, I be too long to discuss the influences, why it changed, I began to realize, well, this is nonsense. Why, I have the right to change any of this material and just do whatever I want with it. 
and I started adding a lot of props and started elaborating upon the text in rehearsals, uh, trying to interfere with the text. Instead of x-raying the text, I wanted to invent, you know, if somebody's supposed to cross the room, make it difficult for them by tying a chair to their ankle. And somehow that would make you notice to a heightened degree what was really happening on stage. Uh, and it will also provide opportunity for the text to go off in different directions. So for the last 20 years, I've written plays by taking those notebooks, typing up the pages of the notebooks, putting them in a big stack. And then when I get neurotic, as I usually do, and say, my God, what am I going to do two years from now? I don't have any material. I'll go to that stack of pages that is written day by day, uh, and I'll look for a page that looks interesting. I'll select an interest, what seems to me an interesting page, and I'll thumb through it, look for other pages that relate to that. And that way, I'll sort of collage a text that to me has a thematic center, even though when writing it, I was not thinking of writing a play. I was just thinking of writing individual pages. So here I have collected 20 pages, 30 pages. I'll then rewrite them these days. And it's been a slow process. In the beginning, I felt a moral obligation not to rewrite anything. I felt this is evidence of where my mental state is at that present moment. Do not touch it. Do not try to make it stronger. Accept it as it is. Now, uh, as any of my actors will tell you, I spend eight to 12 weeks rehearsing 40 pages, changing everything under the sun. I mean, we go through so many permutations that people wouldn't believe it. So I have this text. I then, I'm going to direct it, design a set. Uh, even in the commercial, even when I'm doing classical plays, up till about 15 years ago, I worked with some very excellent designers, but it was never really quite what I wanted. And I found that verbal communication with the designers the, even though they would always give me what I wanted, the minute I had to talk about it, it somehow changed. And I find it much more productive myself to work with these pieces of cardboard and cut them up and put colored paper on them and change them and change them and change them. So my first job as a director is to figure out what the space is in which these words are going to reverberate. And you notice how I put it, uh, you know, in which these words are going to reverberate. The next thing I do, my plays are underlined by continual music. And this music is, consists of loops of little one or two measure sections I take from all kinds of music. I mean, I can't remember anymore where they all come from when we finally do the play. I have amassed you know, hundreds and hundreds of these loops. Uh, usually for each play, I hear a piece of music that I think, oh, I hear certain things in there that might be appropriate for this play which was a combination of old loops and new loops, but my next job as a director is to sit there in my apartment, in my loft, read the play casually while I'm playing different loops, turn the page, oh, here, this page, blah, 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 maybe I'll try this loop, this loop. And I get something that I think will work. Again, when we actually get into rehearsal, that choice of music often changes radically. Then we cast the play, and uh, I'm not very good about casting in the sense that work at the public theater or something like that, I have to do what every director does and sit there week after week seeing all these people that if you're lucky, you know, once a day you find somebody that you think might be right for the play. I can't do that for my plays. I'm shy about calling people up on the telephone and I'd have to do it myself. I try to work with people I know or have seen in some of my other plays. I know you can't tell too much from an audition, but the play is somehow cast by me calling up 
somebody and mumbling, well, I know you're probably, I mean, it's a long commitment, but, well, <laughs> you know, would you like to be in a play? <laughs> tell, tell them how you auditioned for, like, how you auditioned for permanent brain damage, for example. What you, what you tell an actor to do. Well, Permanent Brain Damage was a little, my last play was a little different because the actors did not speak. So I think I just asked them to, um, I gave them certain physical tasks. I said, go to the bookcase, pick out a book, come as if you're going to give it to me, think that you're going to hit me in the head, then run across the room. I mean, meaningless things. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing a play with a text, I actually just have the people read from the text. For many years, I, uh, especially when a lot of my plays used to be words on tape echoing stage action, I used to ask the actors to read the text, but read it as if they were a teacher teaching spelling in a class, or, or teaching penmanship. So the teacher would, so you might have a line like, I'm feeling the greatest emotion I've ever felt in my life, and now I'm going to slash your throat because of it. And the task to the performer was to read that as, I feel the greatest emotion I've ever felt. Well, uh, and that was because of the peculiar quality of the language that I had in plays about 10 years ago. But these days, uh, I just ask people to read. And usually, because I only do plays now that are might, if I can, even classical plays that I do for regular producers, because I do not like the sound of the actor projecting. Uh, perhaps because I am trained by film and television, I prefer what the actor's voice sounds like when he is just talking in this way. Perhaps that's also because I'm interested, even in my treatment of more classical plays, of feeling that I'm listening to an interior monologue of the performer more than the attempt to manipulate uh, the performer that he's working with. So the actor will audition, and generally I'll make them be very quiet, Generally, I'll tell them, you know, you know something I don't know, and you're trying to be very nice, and other people can't complain, but you're trying to hurt me. You're trying to make me jump out the window. You're really trying to upset me. You don't, you, actor, do not have to know, really, why you're trying to do this. But you just know that I'm, I, who you are reading to, am vulnerable, and you are trying to manipulate me in some perverse fashion in that manner. So the plays are cast, and on the first day of rehearsal, uh, usually, I do like the actors to learn all the lines first, uh, even if it's a classical play. Uh, and usually, they do a pretty good job of doing, of respecting that. I know all the reasons that, that many actors don't like to do that, but uh, I feel I never have enough time to rehearse, and I don't want to spend a lot of it waiting for the actors to get their lines. Uh, the first day of rehearsal, we rarely read through the play. Again, even if it's a classical play. I like everybody gets up on their feet, and I just start, as we used to do in high school, as my drama teacher in high school used to do, we start blocking the play. Now, uh, in the old days, I used to come in with fairly elaborate thoughts about how I was going to stage the play. These days, as many directors will say, after doing a lot of plays, you know, I may have one note for each page. Uh, and often those notes relate to props, you know, in this, in this first scene, it might be interesting if somehow uh, they used a frying pan and held it over somebody's head and cracked an egg in it. Had it. Again, all of that will change in rehearsal. It will not change in rehearsal so much when I'm doing other people's plays, because other people, my, my objection to a lot of classical theater is that it's all there in the text, and there's no room 
for irrational imagination to bleed through it and to work with it. But my own plays, I specifically try to make relevant to all kinds of different possible interpretations at each moment. So as a director, it takes me a long time to discover the play. And I do a complete staging of the play, and then after uh, maybe three weeks, we have a run-through, and I see how totally stupid I've been. And we start changing everything. Uh, as I say, that's not so much when I'm doing other people's plays. When I did, uh, well, the last other person's play I did was Venus, Susan Murray Park's play. And there, um, there it changed more radically. It didn't change radically in terms of the staging. It changed because there were continual pressures to sort of rewrite the play as we were going on and to cut it and to, to do things like that, which is a whole other story. Um, so the rehearsal process for me is going, is, do, is doing, what, in doing one of my plays, is having a play that's going to last about an hour and ten minutes when we're finished and rehearsing rigorously 10, 11, 12 weeks and just ch me changing it, changing it, changing it. Uh, I had an actor years ago in France who said, you know, because I choreograph everything. Uh, an actor years ago in France said, you know, Richard, you keep me in a, in a narrow corridor. I've never been in a corridor where I, I cannot get out of that corridor. But within that corridor, I feel freer than I have ever felt as a performer. And it's true that sometimes, if there is an actor who will demand it, I can sort of do normal Stanislavski-type work and we deal with the motivations and what's going on and so forth. Um, if not, lots of, like Kate Mannheim, who used to be in my plays for many years, used to tell me all the time, you know, you would be amazed if you knew what I thought I was doing in each of the scenes. And that's fine. I don't particularly want to know. But if an actor wants to know, we will know. So it's really a laborious process. Uh, usually, the problem in my plays is they have to be finished before I can see that they don't work. As time goes on, I always say at the beginning of rehearsals, you know, I don't know how to rehearse a play, to direct a play. I really don't. I do know very well what, in terms of my sensibility and my aesthetic approach, is working and isn't working. So I know everything that I should throw out. And I do think, in terms of hearing from other actors and hearing, talking to other directors, that I really have the ability to be ruthless with myself and not waste a lot of time trying to make a scene work that doesn't work. And the actors sometimes become frustrated because they say, no, 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 just give us time, we'll develop. And I say, no, it's, it's not working, it's not going to work, forget it, we're going to do it a totally different way. Mm -hmm. uh, you, but you do seem very confident in terms of your ability to move actors or props around in space. I mean, it seems that that's the joy for you of directing. Yes, but usually the first five or ten times that I confidently create these brilliant things, there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I'm not sure that audiences would think there was something wrong with them. I'm not sure at all. I don't know. But for me, there's something wrong with them. Well, when people, I mean, when I read your plays, on the page, they don't seem that different from one another, mm -hmm. honestly, in the reading. And yet, when you speak to people about experiencing a, a series of Richard Foreman plays, they say, oh, well, I really love the universe, but, you know, this new one was just so angry and aggressive, you know. And yet there are, you can't really point to different formal elements. There are some changes in, in sort of the semiotic elements on stage. Um, I want to talk about your style, your visual style. 
do you ever feel trapped by some of the semiotic elements that have? Yes, I do feel trapped. And when I, you know, for 20 years now, I've been saying, oh, this play is going to be no string, or this play is going to be no music even. It's just going to and I invariably do get trapped and get drawn back into what seems to me right. And I have sort of resented for many years people saying that, well, the style is always sort of the same, mm -hmm. because I think that kabuki theater is always the same. But within that tradition, if you're a connoisseur of kabuki, which I'm not particularly, uh, there is all the variation that you would want. If you think of a painter, think of Francis Bacon. Well, there are always these smeared faces and twisted guys. But my goodness, within that vision, the interesting thing is to see 101 variations played on the possibilities latent within that vision. So I think that is an artist's task. I've always tried to make theater uh, as one would paint a painting. Uh, to me, what is interesting in art to see is to see what the world seems like to one other human being sitting out there, because I don't know what it's like within your head. So I have wanted to be very perverse, very selfish, and make plays that reflected, for better or for worse, what my anguish is, what my hunger is, what my delight is. And so I'm not being true to myself, in a sense, when I start out saying, no, this play is going to be totally different, which I often think I'm going to do. And then, well, yeah, it's different, but it doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. And when we talk, it just occurred to me, we were talking about the variations that we go through. Would the rest of the audience notice it if we did version number one? Well, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie that, uh, I forget who made it. Uh, Russian. No. no, Picasso, Painting a Picture. Uh -huh. We've well, seen some of those books that show 27 stages in Picasso painting is adaptation of a Courbet painting. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think I know something about art, and I think I'm sensitive to art, but I must confess when I see the 27 versions of Picasso's copying a reproduction of Delacroix or Courbet, I can't tell which is better. Mm -hmm. I have no idea why he had to reject number 15, which looks pretty good to me, mm -hmm. and he had to keep going until he ended up with number 27, which he said, ah, that's it. But for him, <laughs> that was it. Right. And I think it's sort of the same thing for me. So the ideal spectator, it sounds like, for Richard Foreman play is Richard Foreman. No, no, <laughs> perhaps, but, uh, <laughs> but look, I can only be as truthful as I can be about trying to create on stage the paradise, the particular rhythm, the particular compositional music that I feel is lacking in my life. And boy, I think there's something very big lacking in my life, and I have for 40 years. So I can only assume that I'm a human being, and maybe... There's somebody out there who can be fed by the same thing that really feeds me. Now, I know after all these years that there are some people that are indeed fed by that. And I know that there are a lot of other people who gag and want to vomit that back up and aren't fed at all. <laughs> but uh, to me, that's all that art is about at this moment in the 20th century. Well, I'm glad you bring up feeding and, and sort of this gastronomic imagery because seems what people often don't ask you about your plays, and this is again the biographer in me, is why you, you often choose things like food. Food is, is important in your, in your plays. Chocolate seems to come up, and these, these drinks, and, and uh, does this have any connection to, where do, where do these images come from, and do you employ them to, to trigger some, something universal? 
chocolate or food, which is something that might be comforting, or is it just that food is something that's important to Richard Foreman? No, I think that my theater is the result of, a, I think, a fairly sophisticated esthete working on the primary source material that underlies all of our lives. I mean, what is more basic mm -hmm. than food, Sex. certain kind of sexuality, uh, the other, uh, the fear, I mean, there's, uh, there's another element that occurs all the time in my play, which is blindness, mm -hmm. not being able to see, mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's uh, Oedipal references, but it, all, but it certainly has to do with feeling, oh, you know, I want, I mean, why do you go to the theater? You want to see something. You want something answered. You feel, in a certain sense, blind. You know, I want to see more. But the food uh, is infantile. My theater is a theater of infantile impulses, basically. Now, I can have infantile impulses. You know, perhaps my interest in reading certain fairly esoteric French or German philosophers is still analyzable as an infantile uh, need to say, well, how are things put together? I don't know. Mm -hmm. you know, a little, little kid taking apart a watch or a his toy train. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it is the infantilism of my theater. But in the Freudian sense, everything, all the great palaces, all the great whatever we make, are the result of sublimating and recasting very infantile in impulses. Mm -hmm. You know, the baby playing with its shit learns that it's not supposed to do that, mm -hmm. and instead it becomes a painter or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it is, and that's how culture is, is built. So I want to show the building blocks of the culture and arrange them in such a way that you realize, well, given those building blocks that human beings, biologically, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, are, there are other ways to construct a culture, a perceptual system. You want to leave it open. Take these building blocks and show that they don't always have to end up with the middle-class intelligence of an Arthur Miller play. Mm -hmm. you know? That doesn't have to be the world you live in. Because, in fact, the world that Arthur Miller constructs, for me, is much like the world I grew up in. And it's a world I hate. <laughs> and uh, to a certain degree, I don't mean to put down Arthur Miller, I have respect for the man, but I hate his plays. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and I hate them because they, can, they reinforce my imprisonment in this world that I basically think has cut me off and cut all of us off from all kinds of exciting possibilities that we can't entertain. So you see your, your style or your, your uh, method of staging as it's sort of uh, in political in that respect. Well, I see it in political. I've often said that I do see it political in the sense that I think that at least in, in the American context, the forces of reaction in America are the result of people whose character structure is such that they want to know what's black, what's white, what's good, what's bad. You know, I don't want to live in this ambiguity where things are sort of a mess. And I believe that kind of Keatsian, English poet John Keats's notion of negative capability, which is not to reach irritably out at reason and, and uh, logic at all points, but to learn how to live with real lucidity, with real, real clarity and happiness amid all the contradictions, without trying to resolve them, but just to register them so clearly and learn how to dance with them. Learn, in a sense, how to surf on this ocean of mess and complexity, rather than saying, wait a minute, ocean, 
you go over here and you be a lake and you be controlled in this canal. Would you then uh, ever want to stage a more overtly political or polemical play? Well, I have. I mean, I staged the last overtly political play I guess I staged was uh, Havel's play at the public years ago, uh, Lago de Salado, mm -hmm. which, well, I was killed by Frank Rich in the New York Times who said, oh, here's Foreman doing all his techniques, you know, doing, putting a buzz, putting these buzzers in. Of course, uh, Havel is one of those people who specifically calls for every specific thing, and I was doing specifically what Havel asked for in that play at every moment. Mm -hmm. And I was interested that even though um, a lot of the New York press didn't like it, I got lots of letters from people from what was that, at that time still behind the Iron Curtain directors that were coming over from Middle Europe and so forth, wrote to me and wrote to Joe also, uh, saying, oh, this is just like what it was like. It was a great production. It gave us just the feeling of being in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, whatever it was in that period. So that, now, I must say, <laughs> at the same time, that Havel play was the only play that I think I've ever done, including classical plays. But in the final analysis, I didn't like too much. And I didn't like it because I like dealing with, the uns with something that is finally unscannable, untouchable, that finally eludes the total ability to conceptualize it. And I felt that the Havel play was, you know, the, the threat, everything else in it was clearly there. Mm -hmm. And there was no, for me, no real mystery in it, as there was mystery. And even, you know, Don Juan, which I think is the greatest play in the West, which I got to do several years ago. Or even Three Penny Opera, which, of course, I did many years ago at Lincoln Center, which is a political play, but is a, is a mess as a play. Mm -hmm. And part of that mess, I think, <laughs> is due to Brecht's fighting with uh, trying to make it schematic, but really Brecht, you know, was all kinds of other things at the same time. Right. What, what do you get uh, feedback from the playwrights? I mean, of course, in the theater... They're not going to commit backstage perjury and say, I hate what you're doing with my play. But I wonder if uh, it just occurred to me that part of your directorial aim is opposite of what so many directors set out to do, which is they have a text and they want to illuminate that text. They want to express right. the ideas of that text to an audience. I want to make, well, four, I'll say three things. First of all, I've done, I don't know, maybe 20 classical productions, and fortunately I've only worked with I think three live authors <laughs> who've been around. To, but I've never had any problems. They've all said that they were very happy with, with what I was doing because I am concerned with staging the collision between my sensibility and the play. Now, in my terms, in order to do that, the play really has to be there or there's no collision. Uh, I, I have no interest and I would never try to deconstruct a play and chop it up and do things and put other things in it, you know. Uh, maybe because I can do that kind of thing with my own work. But that, that interests me not at all. So in a strange sense, I always try to be very true to what I think is the author's voice speaking through the play. That's what interests me about plays. Moliere, somehow, yeah, I, mean, I, I know what's going on theoretically between Don Juan and everybody else, and you can have different takes upon it. Uh, but... Somehow it's the music of the author's voice and finding a way to make the lines resonate with the environment which comprises the set, 
the lights and the other actors with their attitudes towards the actor who is speaking, but to make that spoken thing resonate as the, the, uh, the body of a violin is there to make the string resonate. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what interests me about doing plays. And, and about uh, doing other people's plays. I mean, you... Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did both Don, Don Juan of Moliere and I did uh, Don Giovanni. And again, when you're doing uh, an opera, what is interesting to me is really listening to the music and making the staging resonate properly with what I hear going on in the orchestra. Perhaps more than I'm interested in saying, well, at this point, Don Giovanni is saying, get out of my life forever, Elvira, and Elvira, and that, okay, that's so obvious. We take that for granted. Because it was very amusing. When I was doing Don Giovanni in France, you know, at, at one point, there was a big uh, luncheon for all the people, and everybody had to talk about their take on Don Giovanni. And the conductor, who was a slightly pretentious guy, you know, got up there and said, well, to me, Don Giovanni is really, I forget what it was, let's say, interested in death. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I said, you know, I mean, you, yeah, it's that, and it's 12,000 other things. And the task that, I'm, that I set for myself is to make all those things co-present and juggled in the air as so many balls. And I don't want any ball to fall down. This interpretation, Don, John, Don Giovanni had problems with it being weaned by his mother. Okay, mm -hmm. it's, by itself, that's not particularly interesting to me. What is interesting is the 50 possible interpretations somehow evoked, and I think the person who evoked those 50 best in the case of Don Giovanni is Mozart, because you hear a lot of different things in the music, saying a lot of different things. Mozart was almost deconstructing, let us say, Don Giovanni when he wrote music to it. So uh, if you're doing Moliere without the music, the music is still there in the particular syntax, in the particular way these speeches attack the consciousness of the audience. Uh, I want to uh, ask you about Foucault's famous quote to you, that he, in seeing your play, detected some rigorous system at work, but he couldn't quite put his finger on, on what that is. Because I think a lot of people experience that. Uh, that's the sort, that is the spectatorial experience of people in the audience. And I think a lot of people think you're up to something often when they see your plays. And that's why it's interesting to me that you say you're really trying to evoke the music of, of the play. But would you go along with this idea that your style is trying to make people believe there is a system at work, whether it's a textual system or a, a visual mise-en-scene that will eventually sort of pay off, but it's, it's all about dangling carrots until... But I think, no, I, I don't want people to think that there is a payoff, because I don't think there is a payoff in life. I think that life is the system of dangling carrots, and some people become reactionary people, or become people who commit themselves to a particular church, a particular party, a particular aesthetic point of view, and it's obvious from history that all of those come, and then the next wave, the wave comes on the beach, and that little sand castle is destroyed as the wave goes back. So I'm much more interested in that activity of the wave coming in and going back. And I want the audiences to be able to find a way to live happily in, in that flux. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, I, I'm always writing little notes to myself. And one of the things that used to occur again and again in my notes is that what I hated about most theater was that it wanted to convince people, that it wanted to be believable. And I've never really been very interested in the theater in being, trying to convince anybody or trying to be believable. 
what I've wanted to do is show the exhilarating play of all these available elements. There are a lot of available elements in Hamlet. Well, I shouldn't use Shakespeare, because I don't, I don't like Shakespeare. Particularly, I refuse to direct Shakespeare. But in Moliere, I think it's much better. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of uh, available elements to be seen in different lights. Now, that, that does not, it's very hard for people to understand sometimes that that does not mean just making an indiscriminate mix, just a big soup, and you throw in everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that I'm working about in all those rehearsals, week after week, is to make that undefinable something terribly clear, because this moment of it is placed against this wall, and it gives a certain reverberation. And this is placed over here amidst these other actors who are staring at Othello, who are Shakespeare, Othello, or whoever it is. And all of that is an attempt to say that this is not chaos as a big undefinable mix. This is glimpsing how everything is really working upon everything else. Everything is really reflecting everything else, but in a way that has the clarity of seeing you know, a crystal chandelier that's reflecting everything. But the chandelier in and of itself has a shape, and the little facets reflected in it are each seen very clearly. And somehow, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Not getting meaning, not clarifying by saying, look, I will put out all those distracting things if you know, a head is gun is hanging up on the wall in Act 1, it's got to be fired by Act 3. Uh, no, I'm interested in branching out at all points. So you see that the wider the net gets, the more it seems to invoke something that is the everything that we experience in life. But stylistically, that was um, a change for you because your early work really seemed to want to clear away, almost literally clear the stage and put something on there and uh, could, um, you know, inquire into that sort of in a phenomenological yes. way into that object yes. with a clear mind. Now you, you are uh, interested in, in all these objects or sort of you've gone from minimalism to maximalism, these things sh shimmering off one another. Um, when do you mark that that change happened and uh, it's a little hard to say. I think it had to do something with starting to read many years ago before they were so hip here, some of the French thinkers who were talking about those things. But I'd have to think now that, you know, I started with... I, I really hated most of what I saw in the theater, even though I knew that I was very interested in the theater. And I think that at the beginning, it was so simple and so minimal because I said, wait a minute, I've got to start from the ground up. You know, I'm, I'm barraged by this theater in America, that it's trying to reach over the footlights. This was the 50s, and it was especially then, you know, it was a kind of encounter group mentality, and, you know, love will solve all problems, and that was manifested on the stage by seeing performances that, you know, were winking at the audience all the time, or that were reaching out, or that the moments were taken to make the audience empathize. And from the age of 15, when I first heard about Brecht, I didn't want any of that. And I didn't know how to do it, so my, these minimalist plays were attempts to cut down where should I begin? Well, I began with very basic physical sensations in the body, and my plays were all about, um, I'm sitting here. My name is Richard. Stephen. I come through the door. I come through the door, but my foot is heavy. I mean, this would go on for hours. There was very little uh, movement. 
And it was because I felt that the jump into ideas, into personalities, into any kind of manipulation of the other person, as I saw it manifest in the theater, seemed totally phony to me, seemed part of a the theatrical tradition that bore no relation to real life. So I started out saying, what is basic? And I remember reading a little statement, just one statement in some book by a fr French philosopher of the 20s, 30s, 40s, Gaston Bachelard. And he talked about the basic psychological thing being not the Oedipus complex or anything like that, but the fact that you have a body and when you're a baby and you encounter resistance and it is encountered. And with a refreshed, more lucid brain, start to register all this stuff, all this trauma, all the, well, you know, whatever it is, psychology, eroticism, political thought, anything. But now I had, I had a uh, more stringent basis in which to allow myself to touch those things, which if I had started out with those, as indeed I did when I was writing scripts at Yale that copied everybody else, they were informed by everybody else's notions of what it is to care for somebody or to relate to somebody. And I felt that all of that was totally phony when I saw it on the stage. When you, you, you were talking about the cure once and you said, uh, Jung believes that at age 40, uh, a man or a person, I suppose, uh, he probably man. said a man, yeah, <laughs> uh, confronts what's, who he's going to be at that point. He either sort of digs in and retrenches and, and uh, ossifies at that point, or he goes back to this, the roots and, and really does a, a process of self-exploration. And that was how you described your your path at age 40, um, and you pointed to The Cure as a play that kind of thematically addressed that. Well, now it's, you know, now you're about to turn 60. I hope I'm not giving anything away. What, what, uh, what's the next exploration? I mean, uh, how, many how many transitions can you have in life? Well, I don't know. Death. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Uh, well, I, I, you know, it's 20 years after 40. I mean, you can't keep examining yourself, I would think. Right. It wasn't, no, it, well, he didn't say so much examining yourself. He said that you have to make contact with archetypal right. roots, with those rivers that are really not the self, in a sense, but they're... They're not the self in the way we generally think of, yeah. of the, you know, the uh, ego-driven subject. Um, well, let's talk about Jung. Are you still interested in, in Jung? Oh, I wasn't even particularly interested in Jung at that point. I mean, I'm interested in everybody, but... But you I'm are now. I mean, you are more... Jungian? Yeah. Oh, I don't think so. I'm much more... Uh, not Maybe unconsciously, you know, maybe you reject what is closest to you. I, that's certainly possible. But officially, no. He belongs to the, to the wrong team. No. Well, no. <laughs> okay, well, I knew you wouldn't admit it if, if you were. Uh, but where... Where do, where do you go now? I mean, in other words, what can you keep, what can you do now when, you're, when you sort of hit a wall at it? You know, you, you turn a certain age and you, you start looking. Well, I think that was a unique thing because I knew, you see, in order to promote my theater, I enjoyed being very polemical in this minimalist phrase. And uh, I still wasn't nasty. Like, uh, was that, there was one director in New York who used to enjoy going to places where there were a lot of critics and just saying, why, you're all so stupid. And I never did that. I was smart enough never to do that. But um, I did enjoy saying, oh, I'm a tough guy. I, this is what I'm interested in, and I don't broke any. And I could see that a point could come 
whether I, where I'd be there in my little room, in a metaphorical sense, room, you know, saying that and rejecting, uh, just as I've said now, I hated all that stuff that I saw in the theater. Well, there's another part of me that wonders, did I hate it? How much did it feed me? Without that, I wouldn't have had anything to react against. So it's all part of the mix. So it was being able to accept all of that kind of stuff and to uh, develop that kind of attitude that I think was the change at that point. And now, I don't know, I just flounder around, and I mean that really seriously. You know, the way I write is more and more taking these snatches of dictation. And um, I don't know if I can do anything else. I had a very interesting experience for about three years where all of a sudden I just published my first book of sort of fiction. It was just getting into the bookstores now. And that was the product of for three years writing in a very different way. Uh, Instead of writing these little fragments, I would sit down. The only thing I can describe, it was like you think of a river going, and here's a rock. And the river doesn't try to get through the rock, but it just slides around that rock and it keeps going. Well, I started being able to write for a while. Previous to that, I had written and then I'd stopped writing. You know, I came to a rock. And so that day was that little bit of dialogue. And the next day I'd start in another river and stop. But I started being able to write as if I was in this river and I was just sliding around these rocks that would ordinarily stop it and something else would come and I and just... It was very slippery, and I could slide around all these rocks, and it produced all this different kind of language. And actually, I used quite a few of those stories in the play uh, The Mind King. But um, that stopped really happening to me, being interested in doing that, being able to do that after about three or four years. So uh, now I'm back to just taking these little notes. But again, that's a writer's problem. I don't know. I have so much material. Uh, I, think, I think more about... I honestly think, I mean, I, I guess I'm fairly healthy. I'll probably live another 40 years. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I have this vision that, oh, my God, I've only got five more years probably that I'm going to do plays. Uh, how will I go on after that? So I don't think, I, I believe in the contingency of the situation. Mm-hmm. That, that one transition was a specific transition in my life. But most of the time, I try to make my plays reflect the contingency from the beginning of Kate Mannheim saying to me, Oh, you gave that scene to Jennifer? I wanted that speech. And I said, oh, okay, Kate, okay, you can have the speech. You know, it's the contingent. And I remember Stefan Brecht being at one of our rehearsals. And I said, okay, uh, Kate, you can have those speeches. I don't know what the other actors thought, but they weren't really actors in those days. So they weren't upset. And Stefan said, how can you do that? And I said, well, but my, my art is made out of the contingency, the collisions of each moment of what collisions are going on in my head that I write something. And we start to stage it. What collisions are going on and how can I exploit that and use that? And I think I'm just waiting for more contingencies. What, what about leaving the theater? I mean, I'm not urging you to do that. <laughs> but, I mean, you've threatened to do that before. Oh, I've always had a very ambivalent feeling about the theater. I've always had the feeling that... Um, well, I'm ambivalent about everything. Uh, but, you know, I've always had the feeling that maybe... See, my, my theater is sort of a closet spiritual theater. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned with the evolution of my consciousness, which certainly hasn't gotten very far, and, uh, but trying to document some of that stress and strain in my play. 
So maybe I'm just a coward that I haven't gone out and found a guru and achieved something or other, but I'm too lazy to do that or something. So uh, I wonder if this just isn't kidding myself that, oh, I'm working in that area, I'm making these plays that are really rigorous and whatever they are. Should I be doing that? The reason I stay in the theater is because I'm sort of a hermit. I'm not antisocial, but I'm asocial. Left to myself, I would never leave my apartment. I would just sit there and I would, and I'm basically a very lethargic person. I don't know how, I mean, I've produced quite a bit, I guess, but I don't know how, because when I'm not producing, I feel like I can hardly lift my hand to go to the, take another book out of the bookcase. And I sleep a lot during the day. By the same token, I've always felt that as a director, I'm a very energized director, and, I, you know, and when I'm talking, I seem like a fairly energetic person. <laughs> but I've always thought that that pulled uh, upon a part of me that was more conventional than the part of the lethargic part of me that lies on the couch and you know just before I doze off, scratches of ten lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. I feel that that is more that part of me produces more original, adventurous work, and I feel that in staging my own plays, I make them more conventional than they need be, in fact. Right. Right. There's this, uh, there always seems to be this pull between intuition, uh, this sort of raw, disassociated stuff that's in your text, and the way you direct, which is... I I know you want to control every element, but it also tends to uh, freeze it in in a certain way that makes it... Freeze it and focus it. I mean, I do find, I, in rehearsal, find the real theme behind the play, and maybe I shouldn't do that. Or, on the other hand, maybe it's the tension between the two peoples mm-hmm. that uh, gives whatever interest there is to the work. I don't know. It's not for me to say. Do you ever uh, get off the couch to go to the theater? And if, if you do, would, uh, who do you like? And Well, not much anymore. When I, was, when I first came to New York for 10, 15 years, I would literally go to see everything. Even when I was a teenager, I used to come in and see, with my pal from junior high school, every play in New York. But uh, even then... I disliked most of them, was very proud of the fact that I was walking out of most of them. There were a few brilliant things I, I, I saw. But no, now I just don't have the strength anymore. And in those days, of course, one is going to see things to find out what to steal mm-hmm. and how to be influenced. And now, for better or for worse, I'm not open to that, I guess. Um, occasionally I see things. I, I saw something... I've seen other things that were not as powerful to me. I saw a little work by uh, a young woman last year in my theater. It was like a 10-minute piece, but I thought, wow, there's something really different going on there. And, I, and it actually made me think, wow, I think I want to do something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've seen other interesting things, but nothing else in a couple of years has made me think, I want to do something like that. What about films, film directors? Oh, I used, you know, I used to... Up till 10 years ago, I seen every film ever made, including underground films I used to go to every night, and classical films, and so everything. I find films not interesting now because I think films are all are too much in the camera now, and uh, that does not interest me. You know, they're too much in the camera in the editing, and uh, I guess I'm an old fogey, but in a sense, you know, I prefer John Ford. I prefer these classically staged, balletic, great moments. Uh, I, I, I've seen I mean, you, if you're asking for specific things, uh, yeah. Oh God, I don't know. I can't remember. You know, I have seen a couple of things that uh, I thought were pretty impressive, but I can't now. In the last ten years, I can't remember what they are. Um, 
I saw a production of Othello in France that I told many people I thought was one of the great things I've seen in the last 15 years. It was by a young director who was an actor. And uh, it was full of things like, uh, mostly, you know, all the act the set was sort of an Italian hotel in the fascist period with these marble walls on either side. And the actors spent a lot of time sort of leaning against those walls and doing things. And the middle of the stage was empty. But there was one great moment when Othello slapped Desdemona. She was surrounded by her retinue. And he slapped Desdemona, who just held her cheek. But on the slap, six people around her fell back to the ground. <laughs> I thought that was a great moment. But see, now that, I mean, if I were to see that and I had to review that play, I would say, oh, that is a ripoff of Richard Foreman. No, Richard Foreman ripped that off. Okay. Well, what about... Do you, do you go to the theater ever, or do you see your legacy, actually, as, as, you're, as you're still alive? I mean, do you see other directors who have taken the imprint of Richard Foreman's style? A lot of people tell me, you know, I'll go to see something and people will say, yeah. And I often think that they're, they want to say that. Uh, I think it's, I, I can't say it's true, and I, I often don't, I mean, I see that there's a certain relation to me, but I think that I'm, making the most logical choices in the world. So if I see other people making some of those choices, I sort of assume, well, they're making it out of the same emotional necessities that I did. So whether they're influenced by me, I don't have a clue. You asked me whether I still go to the theater. I must say that one of the reasons I don't go to the theater anymore is because when I go see things and they're bad, I mean, it takes me a week, for a week, I become very neurotic and I think, oh, I can, it's just like my play and my plays must be just as bad. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really very, very upsetting to me. Mm. Very upset. No, I, I want to return to this this idea that you've influenced other people because I see. I'm not sure that's quite right. I, I see things happen on stage, and I think it's it's very Foreman-esque, and in a way, it's very logical. For example, to tie a chair to someone's leg and have them walk across the stage, even though the text is telling them to do something different, can actually be a great naturalistic moment in the theater, mm-hmm. and. Perhaps what people have learned from you is that we don't always behave in a way that a text would sort of intuitively tell us to behave. Yeah, but I think there are many other people they also could have learned that from. I mean, I don't know. I'd love to think, yes, I have influenced a whole generation of theater artists. But whether I have or not, I, I really don't know. And it's not from any false modesty on my part. It's very hard for me to tell. Mm-hmm. Talking about things in the theater, though, it's much easier to talk about things I hate. And I don't mind talking about people who are so famous that it's not going to hurt them. I mean, for instance, everything... Everything that I hate in the theater is represented by Ingmar Bergman. I mean, I went to see the production. I admit I haven't seen all, many of his productions, but I went to see the Saad play, Madame Saad, mm-hmm. which I had thought of doing about 15 years ago. The uh, Mishima. Yeah, band. the Mishima yeah, yeah. play. And to me, I mean, I must admit I didn't see the second act, but it just, <laughs> everything about it was what I hated about the theater, the notion that a performer comes on the stage and is some sort of god who controls from some higher level uh, and a kind of fatuous um, playing with what to me are the most cliched version of emotions. Uh, I just think, I mean, I hate his movies too, on the whole, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, that's not... I. That is a strong tendency in a lot of European art, some of which I respect, some of which I don't. I mean, European theatrical art. Uh, I think people 
everybody I've ever known, myself included, is basically foolish. And is basically very defective. And uh, I think that's the material that you have to deal with on stage. And then you can create a world where all of that foolishness and defectiveness and failure interacts and creates some sort of suggestion of some sort of energy that transcends that. But to me, the Bergman kind of approach is like dealing with people of a certain social class saying, not too many people are great enough to deal with this particular sexual neurosis that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And doesn't this ennoble us? And I just think that's nonsense. I know we're supposed to open it up to, to questions, but I'd love to hear you trash other directors. <laughs> well, and I know they would, too. I, won't, I certainly won't trash any of my uh, peers and my contemporaries here around here, and you know, some of whom I respect and some of whom I don't. Trash a European. But uh, Peter Brook, I think, is in that same Ingmar Bergman category. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are people that would be known to people here. I don't know. But, um, and... Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, the few productions I've seen of Strailer also, I, uh, I think they're kind of dead, and sort of in the same way. About Lepage? I've never seen Lepage. Uh, as I say, I saw this one young princess. This, I mean, you know, people think, and I really, I don't like disliking what I see, because if I do see something that thrills me, I really, I grab everybody. You know, I call people up on the telephone saying, I don't know who I am, but I just had to call you and tell you I thought this was great. Huh. And director, I know you are very fond of is uh, Liz LeCompte. Uh, what what is it about Wooster Group that? that oh, uh, listen, just as I'm sure that Liz, uh, who I think likes my work and likes each place, sometimes likes it better, likes it worse, uh, likes it less. I feel the same way about Liz's work, but I certainly res- respect her. And for many years, uh, you know, I did a couple of plays with Wooster Group actors, and. Uh, I, I don't really want to get into the details of a particular thing, but uh, yeah, I, I, I have a great deal of respect for Liz, but there, I don't want to get into a detail discussion. Okay. I, I, I think critics like, like to know about what people don't like. I like to know about what people do like, simply because what expands your own horizon, your own creativity, you said about a 10-minute piece, but... The jump that, because I read an uh, early piece that you said about your interest in mysticism and Kabbalah, how has it affected you? Because that's really an outgoing understanding as opposed to a contraction. Well, I've always said, if you're asking about the theater, it's been many, I don't go to the, but I don't go to the theater that much anymore. And I'm hard pressed to remember productions that I thought were really successful in the theater, but that's because, maybe, because I don't see a lot of stuff. I can remember stuff from 20 years ago that had profound effects upon I mean, when I saw Kazan's first production of Camino Real, I was like 15, I don't know, and I thought I dragged my parents to it, and they thought I was crazy, you know, what's this nonsense? And it was very interesting to me recently to read this book that's out where um, somebody interviews uh, Kazan in reference to all his work with Tennessee Williams. And Kazan, who at various times years ago was very nice to me, and I, I admire Kazan tremendously, but he said, well, the big mistake I made in my life was Tennessee Williams' Camino Real, because now when I see what's happening in theater, I should have done a much more poetic production, because it was a poetic play, and I did it almost naturalistically. Well, I think he's crazy, because I've seen productions of Camino Real by lesser directors, admittedly, 
that we're trying to echo the poetic aspects of that text. And I think it made it seem soggy and pretentious and ridiculous. And I think what was so exciting about Kazan's production was this super realist, super naturalistic production of this nightmare. Mm. And it really <laughs> scared you. And it was just full of great things. Again, maybe if I saw it today, I wouldn't think so. But it impressed me, and I think for that reason, uh, in those days. I love uh, a director I used to admire tremendously was Joan Littlewood. And these are all people that you wouldn't think I would like. But, uh, you know, Joan Littlewood's Oh, What a Lovely War, I saw it ten times. I thought it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Because, again, it was so sweaty and down-to-earth and no false pretensions, you know? Uh, something that did have pretensions that I saw when I was very young and wrote fan letters to everybody involved was Tony Richardson, obviously not a great director, but his production of Faulkner's Requiem for a Nun on Broadway mm -hmm. with Ruth Ford. I mean, I was, again, a teenager, and, uh, but just the quality of that language and the intense, obsessive quality of that play and seeing it on Broadway, I was just, I had chills, you know, it was fantastic. What about other performative forms without pretensions, like circus and vaudeville? I mean, people say that there's that in your work, music yeah. hall stuff. I never, I mean, I guess I like it, but I never, I mean, I, obviously a lot of it is in my work, mm -hmm. but I never was a great particular fan of it. I was exposed to some of it. So, so that that story is apocryphal about you're going to the circus oh, and no. seeing the blinking light. No, that's but that right. wasn't the that wasn't the event itself. It's like the circus in the old Madison Square Garden that used to be over here in the upper fifties or something. And when I was a kid and I was first taken, you, you went through a vom, as it were, to go up. And I walked up the vom and I remember looking up into the sky and seeing all these nets and wires and strings and it was just again, it suggested such potential what kind of activity was going to happen in this place, how they were going to make use of all that stuff. And I think that... And there were lights in your eyes, too, because you were looking up there. I think that had some kind of profound <laughs> influence on me, remembering it years later. David? Aside from uh, giving Kate Van Heim speeches that she wanted to do, how much did the, did the actors in the rehearsal process contribute to the shape of the piece? Well, how much did you contribute? <laughs> <laughs> Steve was in one of uh, my pod for health problems. He had to withdraw at a certain point, but he was in a rehearsal. I contributed about ninety percent of what you saw. <laughs> That's true. Now the actors, can, the, uh, to me, the actors have to contribute their unique idiosyncratic selves. Now, if an actor comes up, you know what actors contribute? It's like James. You know the famous story about James Joyce writing Ulysses, and Beckett was his secretary, and he was dictating, and the doorbell rang, and Joyce said, "Come in," and Beckett thought that was part of the text and he wrote it down and later on when Joyce read it Beckett said I made a terrible mistake and Joyce said no 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 it's great keep it uh, so in the same way often actors uh, in the rehearsal process I'm trying to think of something they're standing around somebody will say something irritable or funny or what have you to somebody else I'll say oh that's great put that in that's the next line uh, so it really comes from them I, I want things really to, to, to come from them but I want to use their spiritual selves, a little bit of the way Bresson uses people in his movies, that you just try to find a composition, again, I'm repeating myself, but make a, a box of the whole stage and the whole play so that this actor's quality reverberates most with that. Find out what this actor does that somehow 
is striking and makes you think about it. And, I don't know. But no, no official improvisation or getting deep into character or anything like that. And that I sort of learned Bressard, and also, I don't know if any of you know of somebody who's now making films, but Yvonne Rayner, who used to be a dancer and uh, used non-professionals in dancing, and had a very influential piece that she wrote where she talked about what minimal dance was like and all the things they rejected. And she used to talk about how much more interesting a, a person was than any character they could play, and how she tried to exploit that. Right, of course, I get, these are all hard things to talk about. I just know that uh, when I'm... I think that informs the writing more than it does the directing, though. Because when I'm writing, I'm just trying to dig away almost more in... in I'm not a Buddhist, like so many artists are these days, particularly, but uh, that spiritual tradition which tries to find out what is really going on in consciousness just trying to write, a, a line comes up, and then write a response to that line, which somehow, well, I'm sorry, I guess the answer is I don't know. I just know. Well, I, just, I wonder if, I mean, there's, there's the notion of serving something greater than oneself. And I just wonder if you have a conscious relationship to that in your process or well, I know only in the sense that I know that I'm always getting in the way, and my task is to get out of the way. Not, but that not only as a writer. Certainly get out of the way as a writer so that something you never thought of before comes through. And like many writers, I have the experience of then typing up what I wrote and thinking, well, what I wrote here is really lousy, but I'll type it up because that's the rule. And then I type it up, and I, think, I look at it typed up, and I, wow, did I write that? Where did I ever think of that? No, maybe terrible. I mean, that's for other people to decide, but I do have that experience. So I have to get out of the way. But as a director also, uh, you know, what I have to remember all the time is something's going on and it's not working. It's not working. I'm sitting there, leaning forward, saying, how can I make your performance, how can I make you be good in that scene? Maybe, uh, look, uh, try it with an accent. Try it as an old man. Try it. Maybe we'll give you a big wig. I don't know. And then I have to remember, and often we do things like that, but the best thing to do is to sit back and instead of focusing on you, sit back and just sort of glaze my eyes and say, what's your name? I don't know. Aaron. Aaron. I say, okay, Aaron's awfulness in this scene, it's strong, it's tremendous, you know. <laughs> let's, let's build the rest of things. Let's be, let, it, let it be awful because if we really let it be awful in some radical sense and then make that something that other people can respond to and deal with, it'll be so strong. It also, it also. Okay. Oh. Well, I just want to, so does that then? I mean, the entire group of people that you end up working with, the collaborators, end up then needing to confront their own getting in the way now. Well, I don't think so. No, I don't. I, I don't think I tell them much about that. <laughs> I mean, well, if you tell them or not. I'm just curious if your if your own journey through the building of your piece. You'd have to ask them because I'm too shy, I'm too withdrawn, no, seriously, to really get involved uh, talking to them about that. And generally, we rehearse 
and it's very dry and it's just blocking and changing. And then generally two or three times in the rehearsal, I don't even know if you were around uh, the first time, uh, things sort of break down or I see there's a sort of frustration in an actor's face or something and I say, look, I think I'm going to say something for about three minutes, for about a minute, say what you have to, and I find out that I've ended up talking for an hour and a half and touching all kinds of roots like that. And that doesn't happen too often, but it invariably happens a couple of times in the course of rehearsal. So you know, other than that, I'd say you'd have to ask them. Uh, if I can just... Yeah, on. here's an actor in one of my... Is, uh, well, two of my plays. What's that? Yeah, I'm just saying that Bob, who's a director, Bob Kukuza has also appeared in two of my plays, so he's going to give but you... That, the, that experience of... Your experience of just letting... Sitting back and kind of just letting whatever is happening just kind of continue and keep going is very much experience as an actor um, in that the rehearsal period is so long and it's so purely directed by Richard and there there is in a lot of ways in the beginning so little intervention by us that we are just kind of these receptacles for a long time just taking his direction performing the, the actions that he's giving us in a very kind of raw way not trying to embellish it by performing it or make it good but just doing it and uh, what I experienced was towards the end of the 10 weeks of rehearsal was that you kind of, it changes you as a performer so much because you don't, you're not kind of faced with being good, you're just faced with just kind of performing it more in a choreographed dance-like way. And, uh, and it's like, uh, I kind of had the experience of those, those uh, visually, uh, created paintings that you stare at long enough. If you stare at long enough, all of a sudden that image appears. And it kind of was a process where, you know, the first week of, of performing the piece for an audience, sections would start to rise to the surface and it started to become, I started to have more ideas of just kind of why I was doing what I was doing and it started to just fill in that piece. Uh, and uh, then it became just more textured. I have to say that once I was in a piece like that, there's a performance artist in New York by the name of Stuart Sherman, who used to be in some of my plays. And uh, he does pieces mostly without words where people manipulate objects and do things in a very neutral kind of way. And he asked me and Kate and Stefan Breck to be in a piece once, which I did. And boy, I never hated anything as much in my life as I hated being in Stuart's plays. So I think I would hate being in one of my plays in the same way. But I, I don't know. Um, are, when you're working with your own vision and working moment to moment, um, and I remember this is called Evil, and um, oh yeah, I can. Pretty hard to see people out there. Um, is it a concern for you that anyone else understand what that moment meant to you? What it meant to me? Yeah, meaning you're creating it, and this moment happens. And No, that doesn't bother me. I do know, I myself know exactly, I mean, I can explain anything. <laughs> but uh, are you talking about the performer or the audience? No, I'm talking about the, I guess the audience in that case. If you're at all concerned that the audience would know what that moment meant to you, or is it really just they're going to have their own experience and their own interpretation of that? Well, they're going to have their own interpretation. 
But some of those interpretations are going to be pretty, I, I, if, I, if somebody wrote them out, I will admit some of those interpretations, I would think, are pretty dumb. But, okay. And some of the interpretations, I know, from talking to people and reading things, are pretty smart. So, I would, uh, it's a difficult question to answer because I am not thinking about that. I am thinking about trying to make an object that is fascinating and beautiful. And I have seen so-called, many so-called avant-garde productions that I think just are totally incoherent. I don't think, what I, I could be kidding myself, I don't think what I'm doing is incoherent at all. But um, it's hard to describe the difference. Hard to describe the difference. But that's the interesting area to work in. Uh, making the inexplicable totally coherent without making it explicable. So you are trying to coherent to a viewer. Yes. Yes, but not necessarily, you know, coherence does not necessarily mean that I can say this minute. For instance, if you see a dance, if you see a Balanchine ballet, what did it mean? But it's more coherent than the ballet done by a first-year student. But who can say exactly why? Well, maybe some dance critics would say they could. I don't know. But and maybe that's where you're talking about the whole idea of the system, that the sensibility of the system works. Yes. Is that sense of coherence within the production moment? Yes. I mean, I believe that if Sigmund Freud were up here on this stage... No, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> this is latent content, but we're going to have to try to... Get out of you. Well, I was about to say, but I thought it wasn't true. If Sigmund Freud were up here on this stage and was giving a lecture, you might not understand. Let's say he was giving it in German. You might understand him, but you'd, there'd be something there and you'd say, wow, there's something fascinating going on. Mm -hmm. And if we got some other uninteresting person speaking German, you would say... Well, well, don't look at me when you say that. <laughs> but then I thought, maybe that's not... I don't know. Maybe that's not true. Maybe Sigmund Freud uh, wouldn't make an impression at all if he was lecture. I don't know. I, that's, that's why I stopped, because maybe I was being foolish. Do critics, uh, and we can finish here, but are there any critics you like? Critics who have, that you have Being asked by a critic if there are any critics you like. <laughs> well, of course, I love them all. <laughs> any, anyone in particular? <laughs> oh. Look, you know... I know Arthur Saner, was that his name? Arthur, the oh, guy in The Voice. Well, I like... Early, him. early on. Yeah, but... He gave the, you encouragement, yes, anyway, encouragement, to, to continue. Yeah, I don't think there's an artist in the world that basically doesn't like any critic that says your play was great and mm -hmm. doesn't dislike any critic that says your play was lousy. Uh, I will say one of the reviews that stands out in my mind as being especially coherent and understanding was the review of Film is Evil, Radio is Good. It was written by Erica Monk mm -hmm. in The Voice. And that was one of I, the best, I thought, reviews I've ever gotten. Not because it was positive, but because she really had her take on what the play was about. And after she said that, and this answers your question perfectly, that was not my take on the play, but she said it, and I saw, oh yeah, that's all in the play, and that's very true. That's what you mean by opening it up to 50 interpretations? Well, sure, how many inter I'm, not, I'm not comparing myself to Melville, but maybe I am, but uh, <laughs> how many interpretations have there been of Moby Dick? Is any one of them right or wrong? No. The artist tries to create a work of art. Now, Melville didn't sit down and say, well, I know in the next hundred years, there are going to be these 50 different interpretations, and I'm going to put it all in my book. No, the artist tries to be a transmitter of certain impulses that he knows are so rich that a lot of things can be seen in it. That's what it is to be an artist. 
And that's why I hate the theater, because the theater, especially in America, is involved with a group of people, your producers and everybody else sitting around and saying, you know, what are we trying to say in this play? I think we have to clarify that uh, Venus is supposed to be blah, 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 blah. So we've got to eliminate that stuff that, that gives the play its richness, that it could be many other things. Sometimes it's important, though, don't you think? It's important for a certain kind of theater. A certain person at a certain time, a certain individual, whether it's the giver or the taker, at a certain moment they're experiencing something, they have to be released from something, and it's almost like the repetition you use to reflect what's going on. Now, wait a minute. What's important? The fact that it is focused in there? There's some sort of psychological aspect of your psyche. Of who's, no, the audiences? Or? Even, or the artists? Well, I, I can't, in general, that's a hard question to answer because the, at certain points almost anything can be important. I mean, I, 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 there are plenty of moments that I have experienced that might totally contradict what I've just said. Yes, and at that moment it was important. But the basic, you know, I'm going down a certain highway, I admit. And uh, there was a moment when we, on this highway of making this kind of art, that, you know, maybe I did stop at the, uh, the, the Joe Papp hot dog stand and I had a hot dog. Oh, that's not supposed to be on the agenda. And I don't choose Joe uh, because I don't love and admire Joe tremendously. He was very helpful to me in many ways. But still, my agenda is a, is a, is a different highway. Just to resonate. To... Yeah, well, you know, it, this is such an abstract discussion, I admit it. So, you know, if I was, I don't know, how, I use abstract arguments to try and, because I'm fairly good at it, to try to get glory try to influence certain critics and people to think about my work and to write about it. But the actual making of art has nothing to do with that. The actual making of art is, uh, okay, instead of sitting like this, you know, that last question you had, flip-flop it. Make the second half be the first half. And don't sit there like that, but maybe stand up and in the middle sit down again. Okay, you do that. That wasn't too good. Okay, um, why don't you turn around and shake your fist and say to the person in the last row, and everybody else yell back. Ooh. Well, it was a little better, but it still doesn't. And you just keep trying everything, and then, oh, it's awful. And Okay, um, go off. Let's cut the line. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. And you just continually are dealing with the contingencies of what's really there, and somehow, intuitively, totally intuitively, in terms of the way you are tuned, your particular radio is tuned to a particular station. You keep getting static. You just try to get rid of the static and tune it right. And then you can have theories about it, look at it, and say, well, I see what I was doing. I'm in control and I'm in charge. But in the making of the art, you're not, I think. Well, one of the contingencies we have to deal with, I guess, is time. Yeah, we're about out of time. I just wanted to uh, thank you both for joining us this afternoon, and thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. I hope we'll see you again. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. 
Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.